Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast for today. Um, what I'm doing is I am recording an audio lecture that you can listen to while you look through the PowerPoint, and then at one point you will go to a worksheet, and I'll talk you through that, and then you'll go back to the PowerPoint. So we'll kind of hop around a little bit, but I thought that this was probably better for you because what I've discovered in the classroom is that for the exercise we're doing today, some of you pick it up really quickly, and that makes it a, a great exercise for inside the classroom, but some of you struggle with it, and so that way, if you are struggling with it, you can slow down this podcast, you can rewind, uh, you can take your time on it, and you won't feel rushed, okay? This is what we're doing today. So first I wanna encourage you to head to the PowerPoint. Um, what we left off with in the last lecture is with the yeoman farmer in which you guys in your quiz um, submitted characteristics about the yeoman farmer. And essentially what you talked about is that he is a white man. He's hardworking, but he doesn't use like complex tools. He uses simple machines like a shovel, which shows that he's a, uh, he has muscles, like he's a strong man. Um, the whole point of the yeoman farmer or some aspects of this image that you might pay attention to is that um, he is centered on his domain, his home, his land. So clearly he owns that. Um, what you'll also see here is that he does not have enslaved people working for him. It is seen that he controls his own labor um, and that it was seen as that if you had no one working below you and no one working above you, that you were seen as sort of a, a pure citizen, better, someone better able to make choices. Uh, in addition, under his feet, what you can see is the slogan that says, I pay for all. And so there's an emphasis on self-sufficiency, that he has controlled all of this. No matter whatever government support he's had, um, because clearly there's been government support in allowing him to take this land uh, for extremely cheap and be able to develop it. Um, but it's the perception that he has done all of this hard work himself. So... Some to reiterate, going on to the next slide, there's some clear connections between the yeoman farmer and American identity. So again, the yeoman means young man, farmer, the mythological original breadwinner. And if you don't know that word, I suggest looking it up because it's kind of a good one to know in the U.S. Um, a man who owned his own modest farm and was able to be self-sufficient. The embodiment of the ideal American as honest, virtuous, hardworking, and independent. This is important because today we're going to talk about slavery and what happens after slavery. So because family farmers didn't exploit large numbers of other laborers and because they own their own property, they were seen as the best kinds of citizens to have political influence in the republic. Okay, perfect. So now we're moving on to slide three, uh, the impact of this rhetoric. So we have three different or at least four different ways that we can see the impact of this rhetoric. The first is on the expansion of land. So we have, um, especially through the 1840s uh, or the eight, early 1800s, we have the expansion of land as part of the American frontier. You're going to see this in the uh, Oregon Trail exercise. Well, you won't maybe not necessarily directly see it, but the reason there is this frontier for pioneers to set out on is because uh, the U.S. government is clearing away Native Americans and sort of um, expanding their borders. And they're doing it for these mythological farmers, saying that this is who we want at the center of our citizenship. 
the expansion of land becomes key to American foreign imperialist policy through the 1800s uh, and up through today. Uh, in fact, it once we go all the way to the Pacific Coast, we just keep going. So even though we are kind of done with farmland, it's still the idea that we need to expand for Middle America and for these um, the good citizens. We keep doing that into the Caribbean um, and into the Pacific. American national rhetoric lauds the small farmer as a symbol of ideal citizenry, uh, and we're, that is a symbol of which that we um, use in our iconography as as far as like the ideal American citizen is like the small farmer, the small white farmer especially. Um, yet farmers are extremely strong. Um, some of our processes over the past century especially have made smaller farmers harder and harder to be able to survive. Um, and so it's made bigger farmers even stronger. And so now the biggest farmers have lobbyists to campaign on their behalf. In fact, and if you don't know what lobbyist means, a lobbyist is someone that uh, gets paid to go and just convince politicians to argue, to create laws for their constituents. So the military has lobbyists, uh, prisons have lobbyists, um, farmers have lobbyists, and America is run by lobbyists. So uh, owning a small bit of land is often constructed as your own personal frontier, your farm, and your source of wealth. If you remember back to one of our first discussions on what is the American dream and how can you visualize it, one of those things is having a yard. Like it's literally having your own um, sort of frontier with for your family. And, and definitely there's a connection there to the yeoman farmer. And that finally, which is key for today, there's a focus on self-sufficiency as sort of the bedrock of American citizenship. Uh, and that is definitely coded in masculinity as well, because we have a lot of sort of toxic masculinity issues regarding how if men aren't self-sufficient, then you aren't a real man and you aren't a real citizen. And that is going to take us right into slavery. Okay, so now you've been... Um, reading through this over the, the weekend and learning more about it. This is a really, really quick. We're not actually going to talk about it because we um, spent so much time with the computer exercise and with the film. We're going to actually get to know a little bit more about what happens to enslaved people right after the end of slavery. So just looking at some a broad overview of slavery's impacts, we have the urbanization of port cities. If you remember me talking about Charleston and how Blackbeard uh, blockaded Charleston's port in South Carolina for seven days, um, and Charleston made its money on slavery. So think about how if there's 80 sites in Charleston, which is about the size of Songdo, if there's 80 places in that tiny little area in which you can buy and sell humans, that is going to, that is a lot of tax revenue, that's a lot of revenue in general that's going to make that city thrive. And certain cities like, for example, New Orleans, Charleston, Savannah, Georgia, Baltimore, those are all slavery import-export cities that are big today because of that. Uh, big agriculture, uh, because in this uh, time period, especially when uh, we had uh, some of the original southern colonies that are founded by corporations for big agriculture, they immediately start bringing in enslaved people as their forced laborers. That legacy of big agriculture, of not really focusing on the small farmers, but it's actually big plantation owners um, enslaving hundreds of people uh, for uh, agricultural work, that it has a firm legacy still today in the South. 
we have new hybrid racial and ethnic cultures, for example, music, food, and language. Yesterday you learned about the word Creole, uh, and so that is, for example, a word that you can find in New Orleans about a mixture of uh, Spanish and English and French and whatnot. Uh, it kind of depends on where you are in the South what the word for that hybrid racial and ethnic culture is. For example, where I'm from in Georgia, off the coast, onto the, off the East Coast, there's what they call the Sea Islands, uh, and one of the culture, the Creole cultures there, they don't call it Creole, but they call it Geechee. Um, so it kind of depends on where you are, what the word is. But yes, definitely new hybrid racial and ethnic cultures. But it also created a racial divide of wealth that persists today, and we're going to look at that. Because ultimately, immediately after the end of slavery, we don't offer reparations, and reparations being like economic uh, support to um, help people that were formerly enslaved. There is this sort of theory that um, anyone that was enslaved is going to get 40 acres and a mule. Uh, that does not pan out, but essentially what happens is it's kind of encouraged that uh, the day that they announce that slavery is over and you're no longer enslaved, they simultaneously say you need to keep working. Um, so there's not really any time to understand what you need, what you deserve, what you're owed, um, what is a good business contract for you, what are your options as a laborer. Um, it's kind of like you've gone from being kidnapped to immediately being forced to work. So we're going to look at that today. The next slide is on the American Civil War. Uh, really quick, the American Civil War uh, was between 1861 and 1865, and it began after the southern states, which was called the Confederacy, seceded from the north. Uh, now, they, we like to refer to this historically as this battle between north and south, but it's actually a battle between the Confederate states um, and the United States. So the United States of America stays it one thing, but the southern states break off um, and call themselves the Confederacy uh, and decide to fight a war to be able to be self-sufficient. So uh, it depends on where you are in America, what they argue is the root of the Civil War. Um, if you're in the South, what they argue is that it's a states' rights issue uh, and that the North, they say it's a preserving the Union issue. Uh, but regardless of the fact, it's about slavery and it is ultimately about um, the South feeling like they, uh, did, they didn't think that the North had a right to regulate um, slavery as a commodity in the South. Um, and the Union, in the, or the North, wanted to outlaw it. So essentially over slavery. So what I want you to do is think about what would make these Southern states want to secede. So you just had the American Revolution in class, um, and you guys were talking about how uh, if you wanted to break away or if you didn't want to break away, and most of you were like, I don't want to lose my money, but I also kind of don't want to start a war over this, and this is all kind of stressful. So what I want you to do is take that sort of anxiety and confusion and like money issues and apply it to this context in the Civil War over slavery. So in 1860, the economic value of slaves in the United States exceeded the invested value of all the nation's railroads, factories, and banks combined. I'm going to read that again. In 1860, the economic value of slaves in the United States exceeded the invested value of all the nation's railroads, factories, and banks combined. So imagine if even in Korea, every uh, metro station, every railroad, every factory, every bank, all that put together still doesn't measure the economic value of what slaves were worth 
So on the eve of the Civil War, cotton prices were at an all-time high. Uh, and at that point, when cotton prices are high, you don't have to pay any laborers, okay? So the plantation owners are just reaping those benefits. The Confederate leaders were confident that the importance of cotton on the world market, particularly in England and France, would provide the South with the diplomatic and military assistance they needed for victory. So the impact of this war today on talks of secession and the lost cause is really apparent, especially going on right now. Um, many states in the South were, uh, with, so the lost cause is this phrase that says that um, the Confederates, a phrase that means that the, the Confederacy um, just didn't have the good opportunity to win, uh, that had they had the war been fought fairly, uh, had their side been respected, um, that they would be they would have been able to have a footing in the war. And so what you do in that situation is it kind of takes slavery and racism out of it to talk about states' rights um, and being able to support states' rights. And so a lot of um, Legacy in the South is of especially white families trying to protect that legacy of um, Confederate uh, soldiers uh, fighting in the war and fighting for that state's rights cause um, as if that is a, um, a respect, respectable one. But yes, still today there's talks in the South of secession um, and how they were treated wrongly during the war. And in fact, we're actually going through another process because, believe it or not, the Confederacy um, had its own battle flag uh, and as a sort of uh, way to express how angry they still were about how they lost the war, many states in the South included that Confederate battle flag, which is a treasonous flag. Um, in their state flags. And so, for example, Georgia had um, a Confederate flag in its, as part of its state flag. And because of all these protests that are happening right now, um, some states like Mississippi are finally taking that Confederate emblem out of uh, their state flag, which is pretty remarkable. So if you go to the next slide, um, what we have is the 13th Amendment. So one amendment in our Constitution uh, is the 13th Amendment. And so it says, I'm going to read it for you here, uh, section one, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So I'm going to reread re that because I want you to pay attention because there's a loophole here. And if you don't know what that word means, a loophole means a gap, like it's a catch, um, like you, it's an exception to the rule. And it says, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime, wherein the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So essentially this says, we can't have slavery anymore in the United States unless you've been punished for a crime. Okay? So, moving on. Uh... On to slide seven, it says questions left after the end of slavery. What happens to the four million people who were formerly enslaved? What happens to the people who were slave owners, enslavers, slave traffickers? How do we rebuild the scorched South? Because literally the war is fought in the South. Um, and this period of time after the Civil War is called Reconstruction in part because they're having to literally reconstruct cities. Um, so I'm from Georgia, and in Atlanta, 
there is no building older than the Civil War other than churches because they believed in a scorched earth policy uh, to try and crush the South. They just burned everything down, tore up railroad tracks, um, did everything as much as possible to try and crush the, the South as this um, uh, breakaway force. Also, I want you to think about paternalism because this is going to be important today when we look at Abina and the Great Men, but paternalism um, from the Labory, uh, Labory, uh, Labor and uh, Citizenship Lecture is about um, father knows best. And it's about the idea that you can't make the best decisions for yourself, that those in power with higher thinking, especially men, older men in charge, can make rules for you that are better for you. So that is guiding how we treat African-Americans after the end of the Civil War. Because we don't just wake up one day and be like, oh, yeah, you're not slaves anymore. You're totally free. Cool. You're equal. Just like me. Go get a job. Whatever you want. No, absolutely not. We in no way, not the North or the South, are thinking this. So some questions that they were thinking about. How do we teach African-Americans how to be productive and subordinate citizens through controlled labor? How can we do it in a way in both the North and the South to reinforce white male dominance? Okay? So, that is what we've been working on here. And at this point, we're going to move to the worksheet and pick up there. Let's do that. So when you open the worksheet, you can pause right now. If you haven't pulled it up already, pause, and then you can play it, uh, start it again in a second once you get your worksheet. But the first page, what you're going to have is the gang labor exercise. Um, and one thing I want you to do is, or actually I'll just start reading it, the gang labor exercise. If you don't know what gang labor is, it's essentially pretty similar to slavery in which you work in gangs. Um, gangs meaning like groups of people. You're often um, shackled together to prevent you from running away. Uh, you are, it's very intensive, like you have someone that's right uh, next to you managing you, being like, you're not working hard enough, I'm going to whip you um, if you don't work harder. It is a very grueling type of labor. And that is the type of labor that after the end of slavery emerges as a, a for pay type of labor. So this first uh, exercise is in part based on a contract from Augusta, Georgia in 1866. So look at it there. Um, there's a link right there that I want you to click on. And I want you to notice, read through it, take a few minutes. Uh, notice how there are classes of workers that are paid differently based on those classes and based on gender. Okay? Pause here, take a look through it, because that's an actual primary source of a contract. If you had just been enslaved and the day after slavery is over, um, that's a contract that you might have signed. Pay attention to it because I'm going to ask you a question about it. So, moving on, we have three classes of male workers. The first class is $15, uh, adult male. Second class is $10, third class is 6 and so on. We have three classes of female workers. What I want you to do on your worksheet is just highlight whichever one you want to be. You can be anyone that you want. It really doesn't matter. When you highlight it, that just sets up your math. Okay? So cotton's growing season of approximately 150 to 180 days, five to six months, is the longest of any annually planted crop in the U.S. That's the season, 150 to 180 days, which is half the year. So if you worked six months, how much money would you make at the end of the season? 
So that dollar amount above is per day. Oh no, I'm sorry, I scratched that. That dollar amount up there is per month. Uh, so if you work six months, how much money would you make at the end of the season? This is gonna depend on what class of worker you are. So you'll put your answer there. And because you're paid a monthly wage, you do not have to pay for your room or food. You are required to live on the plantation in old slave quarters, which are houses. Probably right as the, where you were before as an enslaved person, you're probably living right in the same spot. Uh, you might have some costs for the year. For example, clothing. Um, that was often a thing that you needed to buy because you were in tatters, like tattered clothing from before because it wasn't really required that they give you any clothes as enslaved people. So now you, ha you might have the option to be able to purchase some. Um, so $30 for clothing, for example. Uh, fines is a big one. So for example, if you are have a contract for six months, uh, and you're paid by the month, you can also be fined if you don't work every single day during that six months, every single day, Monday through Sunday, every single day, all day long. So for example, if you hurt your ankle, if you get sick, um, if there's a wedding, um, something like that, it's a dollar per day for not working during planting season, that's the, um, the other part of the year, three days for the season. Uh, yeah, three days for the season, for example, would be $3 per person and $2 per day for not working during harvest season, which is that six months, okay? Three days for the season might be $6 per person. So again, if you wanna take on any fines, cool. You're like, I'm not gonna work those days. Um, other possible costs, medical, for example, deductions from the company store. Company store meaning like, you gotta understand we're in the middle of nowhere, and so literally if you wanna buy anything, you have to buy it from the plantation owner, uh, and so, Whatever you want to buy, if it is liquor to celebrate a birthday, if it's sugar, if it's anything you can't grow yourself in your own backyard, you're going to have to buy it. So take your time. If you need to go back and redo this, um, like rewind the podcast and go back through, take your time to do that. But if not, you might, be, you might have your total maximum pay with cost and fine subtracted and your answer there. Most importantly, what I want you to do is what are, tell me what are the downsides of this contract. Describe two downsides. What are two problems with this contract that you don't like? And I want you to be specific, okay? So the next page is what we're gonna be doing is we move from gang labor, which is what that was, uh, and most people, that actually system doesn't survive that long because it's really, really intense and no one likes it. Um, and you have just ho hopefully written down two reasons why no one likes it. Then we move to tenant farming or sharecropping, kind of depending on like what system you're going through. So we're gonna be on page two of the worksheet. So it is 18, 1893, slavery legally ended about two decades ago. Your plantation owner offers you a job. You take it because you don't have any money or support to make other choices. This plantation and city are the only homes you've ever known. Your family is here. First, you're gonna choose a place to live. The map on the left shows you where you and your family used to work and live before the Civil War. Now choose a home for one of the red dots marked on the image to the right. Just think about where you're gonna live. You don't actually have to circle it because this isn't a pr printed worksheet. You're allowed to rent 20 acres of land to produce cotton. In exchange, you'll pay for your food, tool rental, home rental, clothing, and other supplies at the end of the harvest season. 
So essentially you just go all on loan until the end of the season when your crop comes in and then you'll be able to pay all your bills. The plantation owner owns these items and is renting them to you since you don't own land. So think about which red dot your home would be. Alright, so now you are in charge of working your 20 acres of rented land on your own time. So using the chart on page 4, you're going to determine how much cotton your 20 acres of land yielded in 1893. So I've gone in and put some, I've set you up to go ahead and help you with the math just because you're going to do this for the next year as well. Um, so I want to give you some head start on that. So. Average yield per acre in 1893, if you go to page 4, I have highlighted it there. So you'll see two yellow boxes. Um, one is the average yield per acre in that column, and one uh, column that's highlighted in yellow is the uh, average price, price per pound, okay? So you're going to, if you go back to the average yield per acre one, the one that's aligned with 1893 is 175 uh, 0.3 pounds, okay? That's LB. In case you're wondering what LB is. So that's why I have 175.3 pounds right there, and you have 20 acres. So you're going to multiply that. 175.3 times 20 is how many total pounds for the total acreage that you're going to have. You're going to write that in. You're going to take that amount and multiply that by the price per pound for cotton in 1893 which I've already had, went ahead and written in for you, is 0.07, is point, uh, sorry, 0.07, which is 7 cents. So now I want you to go back to page 4, and you're going, I'm going to show you where I got that, so that way you'll be ready. So again, there's two columns highlighted in yellow. The one on the left is the average yield per acre. We're on, going to be looking at the column on the right, which is the average price per pound, and you'll scroll down and you see a 7.00. Now you might think that that is $7 per pound. That is incorrect, because you'll see at the top of that column, it says cents, okay? So this is seven cents per pound of cotton. Uh, and as I say there below the chart, keep in mind this price is in cents, not dollars, so you'll write it in, in this way, 0.07 or 0.0459, okay? So if you go back up to page two, you'll see the price that per pound in 1893 that I wrote down is 0.07. Now, you're going to do that math for me. Uh, and that's the total amount maximum that you would receive at the end of the harvest season. Now, you're going to have to subtract your costs for the harvest season because now you've got to pay for food, you've got to pay for tool rental because you don't have any, you've got to pay for clothing, you've got to pay for rent. Um, so, for example, the total minimum cost per person or per, per family are $200, okay? So you're going to tell me what is your profit for the year. This does not include medical costs, interest on the loan, and other purchases. So you're going to tell me what is that your profit for the year in 1893. And you're going to tell me how is this better or worse form of employment than gang labor. Be able to give me like a good sentence there. All right, and again, at any point, if, you're, if you feel like I'm getting ahead of you, just stop the podcast, rewind, and redo this on your own. So that way, some of you are going to be like, yep, already ready, good at this. Some of you need more time and want me to go back through it. All you have to do is re rewind and play again. Now we're going to move on to the 1894 tenant farming exercise, in which you're going to do the same thing. You're just going to do the math for me. So it is 1894 you have at least one year of tenant farming under your belt and you might have entered the year with a surplus which if you did your math right you would 
you continue to rent 20 acres of land to produce cotton. In exchange, you'll pay for your food, tool rental, home rental, clothing, and other supplies at the end of the harvest season. The plantation owner owns these items and is renting them to you since you don't own land. So now, you're in charge of working your 20 acres of rented land on your own time. Using the chart below, determine how much cotton your 20 acres of land yielded in 1894. So you're going to go find the average yield per acre in 1894. You're going to write it there, uh, how many pounds that is. Multiply that by 20, and that's how many total pounds for your total acreage. You're going to take that amount. You can pause this if you want. You're going to take that amount for the total acreage. You're going to multiply that by the price per pound. Remember, it's point zero something, okay? It's in cents. And that's the total a dollar amount you're going to have at the end of the at the end of the harvest season. Subtract your cost for the year. You're going to have at least $20 in food, at least $100 on tool rental, $30 in clothing, $50 in rent. Your total minimum costs are going to be $200 per person. Um, if you had spent your surplus, for example, if you had a surplus from 1893 and you spent that, you wanted to spend that surplus on tool rental, you might um, be lower. Uh, you might not have to pay so much for tool rental. But either way, you're going to tell me what your profit for the year of 1894 is. This does not include medical costs, interest on the loan, and other purchases. All right, so now you have a series of questions. And it's essentially a, kind of like a quiz, but you just have time to answer it by yourself. Also, you can work with anyone in the class. I really don't care. What is one thing you like about this contract? Write it down for me. What are the downsides of this contract? How are sharecroppers at a disadvantage? Give me two specific downsides to this contract. How might this labor system promote negative stereotypes of African Americans? Now there's no clear answer here. I want you to put on your thinking cap and be um, think, think in critical analysis. So if this is the system in which most African Americans in the South are forced into how might other people be perceiving them negatively? What negative stereotypes will, might be, um, be creating about African Americans just because of how terrible this system is? And then finally, looking at the chart on page five, if you are a tenant farmer, uh, are you likely to make more money by 1940 than you make now or less money and why? And more money meaning like per year. So in 1940, do you think you're going to be making more money then or you're going to be making less money then? Um, and the question should hopefully this experience today about the relationship between the yield and how much money you're going to make should help you answer that correctly. Okay. So again, if you need to go back and work on the worksheet, rewind or whatnot, pause and do that. Otherwise, you'll just upload the worksheet uh, right where you downloaded it from. You'll submit that um, today. Last but not least, I just want you to head back to the PowerPoint um, for us to finish that up there. Let me scroll to the slide I want to be on. Okay, so we are going to be on the slide that says discussion. What does our math not account for in the lives of these African-American families? What other costs might they have that you did not account for in your math? Now, some of them that I wrote out in the handout, for example, um, interest on the loan was a big one because we didn't even count interest. So some plantation owners would say, oh, yeah, sure, you can wait until harvest to pay me. 
but it is 10% interest um, or whatnot. Uh, some of them, if it's like, oh, well, if it's, uh, it's anything you want to buy at the company store, it's going to be 10% interest, but you don't have to pay me until the end of the year when you get your harvest. Um, let's look at some other things. On the next slide, it says what's missing. Uh, these numbers don't account for systemic racism, such as the constant threat of bodily harm. Uh, they don't count for racial segregation and education. So at this time period, um, if your kids are going to school, you have to pay for it. Like, um, they, you're, the black kids can't go to the white kids' school, and so therefore it's up to black families to build their own schoolhouses, to hire their own teachers, um, to purchase their own books for their own kids. And many of these people did not have those, the opportunities to do that. Um, there's also racial segregation in medicine. Um, so even most of the doctors are white doctors because they were employed by uh, white plantation owners. So therefore, it's not like you can go see a black doctor for cheaper. You have to take whatever cost the white doctor would treat you for. Um, and oftentimes, if you're in a place in the middle of nowhere, like still working on some of these plantations, uh, the, the cost of medicine is higher than you might be able to get in a city somewhere. Um, also, imprisonment for misdemeanors like vagrancy and loitering. So if you don't know those words, I'd suggest looking them up. Uh, vagrancy just means being homeless. Like, that's it. It doesn't even, it's not even a crime that you've committed. It's just not having a home. That is illegal in America. Uh, and loitering, which look that up. The definition is standing outside. These are two crimes that are created during this time period to just arrest people, to find ways to put especially poor black people in prison. Um, those are some things that are not accounted for in this situation because they were uh, white people were very focused, both the North and in the South, that African Americans should not be idle, they should not be still, that they still needed to work. Even if they've been enslaved their whole lives, there was no day off. You needed to work, 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 work. Uh, there's also, in, in thinking about what's missing, the expectation that women needed to care for children. In none of these accounts is it like there any room to be able to take time off to take care of children. In fact, it's almost encouraged that as soon as your kid can possibly work, they should probably be working with you in the fields. Um, especially with gang labor, a children might might a child might get paid for labor but especially if you have your own 20 acres of land and you need more help around um, the farm you're definitely going to pull your kids out um, within a few years and have them work for you uh, sex discrimination in pay um, if we're not looking at tenant farming if we're looking at the gang labor that was very very obvious uh, but even then uh, in a town for example even if in a family if the uh, husband, for example, is able to manage the farm um, and the wife wants to go and get a job, the, some of the job options that she's going to have are pretty much uh, like subhuman work, like domestic workers, like working for other white women, being their maids and servants. Um, those are all positions that pay, that sex discrimination pay is completely legal. So paying, uh, paying uh, black people less um, is totally legal and pay, paying women less than uh, men is totally legal. So they really didn't have any options to kind of um, make up the money that they might be losing in tenant farming. 
there's also a racially prejudicial justice system in which, for example, if you have, if you don't like your contract or you think you've been treated unfairly and you want to take um, the plantation owner to court, uh, you have to understand that this whole system is racist in the South. So it's not like you can go to court and think that they're going to treat you fairly. Um, the judge is also racist and the lawyers are also racist and it costs money to take things to trial. Um, and so there's not really any way that you can find um, a way out of this system even when you know that you're being exploited or your contract has been broken. There's also no escape because what you'll find is that it is a crime to run out on your debt and the system is created to keep you in debt so that you cannot leave. That is the whole point of the system. So if we go to the next slide, it says Slavery by Another Name, which is the title of a book by Douglas Blackman. It's also a, um, a documentary, which I recommend watching. So tenant farmers, this is just uh, information from his book. Tenant farmers were paid, um, had to pay an interest rate that sometimes exceeded 50% annually, uh, depending on where they were at. Many sharecroppers could not read because they had banned from learning to read and write during slavery. So you got to imagine that. Like, it was illegal to teach an enslaved person how to read and write during slavery. And so now, one year later, you're expected to be able to know how to negotiate contracts fairly um, and get political representation. It's kind of ho horrible, like, the situation that um, many African Americans got put into immediately. Also, plantation owners often fudge numbers to their own benefit, being like, oh, well, it's, you say that you had 175 pounds, but my scale um, is showing that you actually only had 160 pounds. Like, I'm sorry, but your math is wrong kind of thing. And if there's only one place in town where you can weigh your supplies, it's not like you can go somewhere else. In fact, a lot of times what they would do in these... Um, in these small towns is that they would pass laws to support white plantation owners. So one law, common law that would be passed is that you could not transport cotton at night. Um, and so, which just doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, but the whole purpose was that you couldn't take your cotton out of town to be able to sell it um, at a different price, perhaps even a better price. So there's no, you're not even able to have price competition, um, which can better your situation. And finally, most sharecroppers and tenant farmers ended up in debt. So let's go into the next slide. It says prison labor. Uh, in 1871, Virginia Supreme Court case Ruffin v. Commonwealth, um, the decision referred to prisoners as slaves of the state. So very quickly after the end of the Civil War, if you go back to that 13th Amendment that we talked about, uh, we now have outlawed slavery except in the case of a crime. And very quickly we begin to refer to prisoners as the state's slaves. So convict leasing um, is the system that we still refer to today in which states um, can rent prisoners to plantations or corporations or other businesses. Um, it is a very lucrative system. And in fact, we still have this system today. For example, it's especially lucrative in this time period. For example, in 1898, some 73% of Alabama's entire annual state revenue came from convict leasing. Um, states like Mississippi, for example, make tons of money on convict leasing. 
So today there are actually government incentives for corporations to use prison labor. Um, for example, the Work Opportunity Tax Credit grants employers $2,400 for every work release employed inmate. That means that a job, you'll get paid by the government $2,400 to just hire uh, an inmate to do your work for you. Uh, that inmate is not even paid like pennies. I think it's pennies. There's actually no federal law. I think I'll talk about it in a second. There's no federal law that um, offers a minimum wage for inmates. So you actually get paid money to hire people to pay them less than you would an actual worker. Uh, prison insourcing remains cheaper for companies than foreign outsourcing. So outsourcing we talk about a lot in the U.S., and especially over the course of the 20th century, about moving companies abroad, especially to like Southeast Asia or Mexico where it's cheaper. Um, insourcing is this new push so that if outsourcing is getting more expensive because places like China or Mexico want to get paid more money, now you can use prison labor. Um, and what they're saying is like a lot of products that are made in America are actually made by prisoners. So the next slide, the constitutionality of prison labor, in case you had some questions. Are you legally obligated to work if you're a prisoner? The courts have ruled that you are required to work if you're a prisoner and you are not protected by the constitutional prohibition against involuntary servitude. Under the Federal Bureau of Prisons, all able-bodied sentenced prisoners are required to work except those who participated full-time in education or other treatment programs who are considered security risks. Do prisoners get paid? Not really. Inmates have no constitutional right to compensation and that inmates are paid by the grace of the state. Essentially it is a kindness that the state is paying you anything. Prisoners are still charged for their room, board, and supplies in prison. And in fact, uh, there's plenty of studies that show that um, a lot of this stuff is in way higher rates than you would even pay here on the street. An example of that is like tampons. So you're in prison. It's not like you can go to the store and have that price competition for tampons. But as a woman, you're probably going to need some because you menstruate every month. Uh, and so those are way more expensive in some cases like a dollar a tampon, um, which is ungodly and you would never pay that out on the street. So what I have here, if you scroll through the rest of the slides, I have some examples of prison work. Um, the work that we use in America for prisoners. The most common one, which you'll see on the first slide, is agricultural labor. Uh, in fact, it is one of the biggest industries still in Mississippi is that their major uh, state prison um, is a farm, uh, a huge, huge farm. Um, and they supply a lot of the agricultural products for the state. The next one you'll see is our prisoners, uh, inmates that are cleaning up homeless encampments. Uh, in Hawaii, for example, that's one of the most common things that you'll see is that they'll hire um, inmates for pen, like they'll require inmates to go and clean up homeless encampments, which is kind of kind of horrible, for example, because you can get arrested for being homeless, homeless, sent to prison, and your forced work when you're in prison is cleaning up more homeless encampments. Uh, the next slide is of firefighters, in case you didn't know. Um, we actually, uh, in some places like California where there are a lot of forest fires, um, we get prisoners to do our firefighting for us. That is an incredibly dangerous, dangerous job. 
Uh, at this point, you'll see a slide that actually has a website on it, and this is for real. This is like real website, okay? Um, in case you wanted to Google, um, how do I find prisoners for my um, company? Unicore, there are plenty of websites where you can do this. That There are companies that just specialize in um, finding prisoners to do your corporate work for you. Um, one of the most common ones is uh, inbound, outbound call center solutions. For example, customer service. So in America, Americans really like to hear people with American accents because they're kind of racist and xenophobic. Um, and so it's expensive to pay um, regular employees the minimum federal minimum wage um, to be a worker in America. So instead what they do is they hire prisoners uh, paying them pennies on the dollar to do customer service for them. On the next slide you might think that uh, prisoners are only doing um, menial labor, um, like simple labor, but that is in no way the case. Um, you can actually hire prisoners to do your computer-aided design or CAD services for architecture and pl urban planning to create 3D models. I know I have at least one urban ecology or one civil engineering uh, student in this class. So do not think, because you know some fancy software program, that you're immune to forced prison labor because anything you can teach someone, they will teach you in prison how to do that and then pay them cheaper. Uh, finally, the slide that we get to on the, is the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Um, one of the most common things that prisoners do is supply materials for the U.S. military. So creating um, uniforms, especially you can see this picture here of them sewing uniforms. Um, in addition, um, while they don't deal with armaments, they do... Um, uh, prisoners are in charge of making things like helmets um, and putting that all together. And that is seen as a good thing because the U.S. does not want to outsource that to other countries um, and have any other country have any sort of impact on uh, like a malfunction in U.S. military gear. And so therefore it's seen as not only good that we can pay our prisoners less, but also good in that we're not dependent on another country. But I also want you to think about, as always, how does this impact you and your campus? And so finally on the last slide, this is, um, has been a university issue for years because universities are using prison labor um, for their goods and services. And here I have a slide that's about Stony Brook. Um, this is uh, an article on the left about how for years Stony Brook University, um, they bought cheap desks from Corecraft, um, which is a company that uses um, the New York Department of Correctional Services. They use prisoners, New York prisoners, to make desks for them. Um, so they did that for 30 years. Um, what's important about this is even though this article is from 2007, these current um, anti-police brutality protests that are going on have sort of reignited that protest of Stony Brook, arguing that they should not use prison labor, uh, that they should use uh, fair labor, um, fair paid workers. So as always, you know, with slavery, I like to mention George Mason and how he was a freaking slaveholder. Um, he was an enslaver. And so with Stony Brook, um, there are issues on prison labor. Uh, and so I'll keep bringing up some more issues as we go through the course um, and whatnot. So don't forget to upload your worksheet for today in the exercise and look at other things that you're responsible for for today. Okay, bye for now.